Hello and welcome to another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. And today we're going to be discussing mythical females. So mermaids, harpies, valkyries, sirens, banshees, we've been encountering the mythical female in literature and folklore for thousands of years. She appears in numerous religions, sometimes as saviour, sometimes as a harbinger of doom. She lures men to their death. She transports them to the afterlife, enchants them, tricks them and sets them free. So what are the origins of these specifically female creatures and why do they continue to fascinate us? I thought we'd start by talking about our own favourite mythical female creatures. Um, so Megan, Charlotte, what what would you pick if there's a whole pantheon of, of females to pick from. So uh, wh- who do you think is your favourite? Well, am I allowed to pick a couple? Is that right? Absolutely. Go for it. Woo-hoo. There's so many. Um, well, I mean, if it, we were talking just before we started up, about obviously the differences between gods and goddesses and the more sort of rural folk to- folklore, uh, fairy tales, that kind of thing. So I guess my favourite goddess always had to be um, from Greek mythology because I grew up reading it, did Latin and classics, just loved it. And I was always a big fan of Artemis um, because she was both, I love the fact that she was the goddess of the hunt and also the goddess of um, the hunted. So she kind of had this dual purpose. And I like this idea of balance and that you had all the other gods and goddesses going off with their vices and their drinking and their having sex with swans and things like that. And then you had Artemis who was just kind of, you know, enjoying the forest and going, well, you know, I'm going to hunt the creatures, but I also respect them. And at the end of the day, I'm kind of, you know, going to look after them as well. Uh, I think that's obviously in the the Eskimo cultures and things where they, they sort of they get when they hunt an animal down they also you know ask its permission to take its soul and give it back and they have all these rituals to send the soul back so that they'll then get the animals back again and I just thought that was a really nice thing and I quite liked Artemis um and I brought a statue of her back when I went on my uh, my GCSE trip to uh, to Italy so there we go but on that's on the god and goddesses side but I have a real soft spot um for folklore and fairy tales and when I was looking through all of my um, fairy tale encyclopedias and yes that is plural I do have more than one um I really liked the um the character that actually appears in my novel the poison crow which is a water spirit and it goes by the name of Jenny Greenteeth or Peg O'Neill uh, Peg O'Neill, sorry, or Peg Powler or a Grindelow, which obviously people know from Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And I just I just love these, the idea that you've got the same woman who basically lives in rivers and drags unwary children down and devours them and things like that. But each river has its own different one. So Peg Powler comes from the Tees and Peg O'Neill comes from the Ribble and Jenny Greenteeth is from somewhere in Lancashire. And I just like that you sort of had this same woman who was slightly different and I could never decide if it was going to be the same woman kind of doing rounds and having different identities in each one or whether it was, you know, three different women. I just thought it was really cool. That was always one of my my favourite ones. So for me, uh, the novel that I've been working on for years and, you know, struggling with um, is actually about uh, the Erinys or the Furies or they're also known as the Eumenides. Um And I love them. And they're basically... <laughs> I, I actually really like their uh, sort of origin story, that they're born from the blood of Cronus's castration. <laughs> that is wonderful. Says something about me. Um, but yeah, they're the, basically the embodiment of vengeance and they're you know particularly invested in avenging crimes against women. 
um, they're like in terms of how they look, you know, they are creatures. Sometimes it's it's like all these things in mythology. Sometimes they're described one way and others completely differently. So sometimes they're these beautiful maidens and other times they're grotesque and, you know, they've got wings and the head of a dog and snakes for hair and bat wings and all, all sorts of things. But basically they, they torment their victims and they make them pay. And that's what I love about them. <laughs> It's quite a common theme, actually, to find um, so many uh, female creatures that that are in for they're into the kind of revenge industry, aren't they? There's a lot of I mean, sirens are well known for luring sailors to their deaths, and I'm not entirely sure why what the sailors did wrong, apart from maybe being men on the sea. I'm not sure why this is this is a bad thing. Maybe they did it for fun. Um, and of course, you know, banshees. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for banshees. And I love the idea of the whale. And, the, the, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, it reminds me of, uh, oh, is it in Harry Potter where the basilisk, it's the only thing that will kill it is the crowing of the rooster. I just love things about keening and wailing and the, the power of the voice, um, which is probably why I like, kind of banshees that idea do you yeah, like hush that... then the episode of buffy where oh. yeah where... which one is that which one the is one that? with the gentleman where, where they, they all lose their voices of... yeah and the only way to to basically get rid of them is the the sound of a girl screaming oh i can't even remember that it's been so long since i watched buffy <laughs> i need a buffy rewatch a marathon well, oh, just that episode. That's that a good episode one. is excellent. Although I I can't really watch it by myself because I'm a big wuss. <laughs> oh, is it really that bad? I, is it scary? Well, to be fair, so the first time I watched it was after. Uh, this is going to really show how really lame I am. Uh, <clears throat> I watched eighteen Buffy episodes in one day. <laughs> <laughs> and how many episodes of Buffy is that? Just. That's a lot. Too many. Um, but that was the last one I came to. And then I realised, and like watching it, when they all lose their voice and no one's spoken. And then I sat there and realised that I hadn't spoken to anyone all day. And I was just having this weird thing of like, I haven't lost my voice, have I? No, that's fine. And so I just started talking to the cat and like having an actual conversation because I felt like I had to use my voice. <laughs> I really need to look up this episode. Is it in the uh, earlier seasons? Season four. It's ah. in, um, yeah, it's in with Riley, isn't it? So Yes. What, what's, the, what's the rhyme? Um, can't even shout, can't even cry, the gentlemen are coming by. Uh, looking in windows, knocking on doors, they need a heart and they might take yours. I really oh. like that. So. Wow, that you could just quote it verbatim off the cuff. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I really like that episode. Well, it is a good episode. <laughs> Moving on, because we could totally get stuck on Buffy all night. Because clearly Buffy is awesome. Um, so, yeah, well, I thought I'd pick up on um, what we've kind of touched already. This this idea of, um, you know, a destruct, a, a destructive tendencies in these females. So if you've read um, Keats's Le Belle dans Sans Merci, uh, which is a really wonderful haunting poem, um, which is about a knight being led astray by an elfin lady. Um, I mean, these these creatures, these, these feminine creatures, they may look benign, 
behind their beautiful faces generally beat hearts of ice. They exist only to kill or create misery and often specifically for men. I mean, they're more physically alluring than physical women. Um, there's an you know, just you and me. They're more beautiful. They're more mysterious. They're they're sensual. Uh, um, talk about yourself. Come well, on. I I have to say I don't think I can compare with a succubus because you know I feel pretty ordinary compared to a woman with demon wings and horns, which I'm sure everybody would love because I want demon wings and horns. Yep. <laughs> I'm with you there. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite upset that I don't possess these things. Um, but yeah, crucially, they've got really little in common with with us, you know, with with mortal women. Um, you know, and they, they, they more closely resemble these kind of archetypal sexual uh, fantasies. So my next question is, to what extent do we think these females are chiefly products of the male imagination? I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, I mean, the prime example that I would kind of give in, in this question is um, Hansel and Gretel. When it was first written by the Grimm brothers in um, 1812, the version said, said that the mother and the father argue about what they're going to do about the kids and not having enough food and eventually decide together that they are going to um, abandon them in the wood and blah, blah, blah. But by 1857, the Grimms had rewritten it so that, in fact, the father pleased the stepmother not to, and the stepmother, who is now no longer a mother but a stepmother, um, says, no, no, we, we can't possibly, we, we have to leave them out. And that's the version that has kind of stuck with us. So I, I think there is a certain element that men have kind of created these women, even where they perhaps don't exist before. Um and but I, I also think there's an element of perhaps women carrying on. So maybe not the stepmother in Hansel and Gretel, for example. But I mean, these days we have so many powers and so many freedoms and we're very, very lucky. But women back in the days when these stories were being told, um, the sexual power is all that they had. Um, and I think it must be very satisfying if you're a woman to hear about someone, a, a mythical creature in this land and another land that basically goes around and kicks men ass. And I, I know that there's the stories we have are ones where the men eventually escape or kill them or outwit them or whatever. But it does make me wonder how many of the original stories, like the Grimm stories, started off with it being a bit more equal and has actually sort of come on and the ones that they remembered are the ones written down by men, where the ones where the men kick ass and, and the women are overcome. It does make me wonder if there's elements of perhaps um, other uh, women telling stories previously that maybe have slightly different endings. I'd like to think that there is. Well, it makes me wonder as well. Like I know, Charlotte, you talk about um, how a lot of these sort of myths, folk tales, fairy tales were told to teach women, you know, about life basically and you know as you say in terms of their power especially you know can't compare with physical power so when you have sexual power you're teaching women that this is something that they can use to their advantage and the way I like to, to look at it is is how Ling looks at it on Ali McBeal and you know men have the dumb stick and we women would be fools not to use it to our advantage <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's the thing. And, and, you know, it makes them stupid. So why not use it? <laughs> Obviously, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to see more characters and, and creatures, female characters who don't rely on sexuality for power. But I think certainly in terms of, you know, historically and in these sort of mythological creatures and so on, 
it was very representative of the only power that these women had available to them. So I think while, yes, these women are these sexual deviants almost in in terms of you can definitely see how that came out of a male gaze and a male imagination, I think they also did have power for women and uh, a relevance to those women. So why does the destructive female remain so popular today? Um, we see her in the femme fatale and the villainess, and we, we actually had two episodes discussing the villainess and the virgin earlier um, in the season, didn't we? Uh, I mean, why, why is she so popular? And, and what do men kind of get out of, of reading or, or watching or encountering these women? And is it a test of, um, you know, masculinity for them? Is it a test of willpower? Um, why are they they so popular still? Well, I mean, I think back to um, when I was a, a kid and watching, you know, uh, things like Merlin or um, uh, other stuff like that. Sorry, I had a really big thing for the, the Merlin with Sam Neill and Miranda Richardson when I was a kid. I love that. Oh, and me watched too. It on repeat. Yeah, it yeah. was good. <laughs> um, but I mean, I suppose a guy watching that would come away with the idea of, oh, Merlin won, you know, and, and he did really well. Whereas I came away with the idea of, wow, Mab kicks ass and Nimue is really hard. She like, you know, stayed there and okay, she had to wait for Merlin, but it was her choice and her action and her agency. And she chose to be there and, and sacrifice it, you know, herself for the, the man she loved. So I think you look at those characters and you come away with different things. Um, and I think it's, it's not quite so bad if you see a villainess and you, I mean, it's like saying that men can't, um, you know, sympathise with women. And women are perfectly able to sympathise with a good man. Like, I really like Sam Neill's portrayal of Merlin. And he was totally the right guy to win. And he was really nice. And he should have kicked Mab's ass. Um, but I still came away thinking, wow, Mab's totally really cool. And it was just nice to have a, a couple of strong women in something like that, even though they traditionally maybe, you know, ended up relying on the men and things. I think it, it's still a very positive role model, even if it does end up not so good for them. I mean, what do you think, Megan? Well, I I think there's, there's two sides of this. So I think potentially the femme fatale type character, you know, the, the woman who is dangerous and relies on her sexuality is still popular sort of because of a lack of imagination. Um, you know, without that physical power, what do they have? And it's interesting then when things like you bring in supernatural abilities or like creating female superheroes and you you see that so many of these superheroes that our women have mental abilities as opposed to physical strength and physical abilities. You know, that's one interesting thing. And I just think that's kind of part of what we've talked about before in terms of just default. You know, we just don't think of women as the physical ones. So give them other powers and a lot of those powers end up being manipulative mental and sexual but i think there's also something i mean this is okay probably just me armchair psychology all this kind of thing but you know in in our society in, in most western societies at least um obviously lesser now but you know it's always been the men take charge the men are the running the household the men are going out to you know, get the money and the men are the ones, yeah, they're the ones in charge. So I feel like to, for a man, it is, it may well be 
kind of exciting to have this woman who's in charge and the woman who takes control and this, you know, this destructive but sexual being who's going to just take over because that's kind of the opposite of what they're trained to want. And uh, am I making sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I absolutely, absolutely agree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, the idea of the succubus, I think, comes on from that really, really well. Because, I mean, they're basically like dominatrix demon women, mm. <laughs> you know, equipped yes. with whips and, and you know, a d- demonic appearance, but also a beautiful appearance. But th- their beauty is not like a, a kind of mermaid's or a siren's beauty. And it's ethereal. It's all very um, physical and sensual and really rooted in the carnal and all the things that could happen, you know, behind closed doors when, you know, behind maybe in this this one small space the woman becomes um the dominant one and i think maybe that 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 idea is a very powerful one and that the you know that seems to have endured through through hundreds of years because we were talking about you know why these are, are still so popular but i wonder how it, it's very difficult to say kind of where they originated from and whether they originated from uh, you know a kind of joint conception of of you know, a, well, a joint imagination between men and women, or whether they were very much uh, products of, of male invention. I mean, we've had a lot of women haven't really been, um, you know, in, in being allowed to, to participate in producing popular literature uh, or art, you know, in a, in a kind of, well, I suppose, in, in Western um, culture for, you know, hundreds of years. So, I kind of feel like, well, if if women had a hand in this, would we be creating the same preachers? Would we be producing, you know, talking about succubuses and and sirens and 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 kind of uh, sexual deviance and and power plays, um, or is this just coming from men? And is this is what they want in their women secretly? Well, I'd, I'd have two answers to that. And the first one is you were saying about, you know, are men writing this and this is where it's coming from. Um, if you read Maria Warner's book, um, I think it's called Once Upon a Time, uh, it's she basically goes at one point and says in the early 18th century, um, fairy tales were actually written by women, intelligent women in elite society. And they took over traditional fairy tales and used them to depict the struggles of their own sex. The trouble is that after these women, you know, got published in sort of small pamphlets and magazines and things, you then had Perrault and Grimm, who two guys, oh, sorry, three guys, I suppose, because two Grimms, um, who go around and produce massive tomes and have now been taken as standard and a kind of canonical and it, it's their ones that we go back to rather than perhaps we dug a bit deeper we might find that actually women have been putting forward um versions of this but you're asking about whether it's all just from the male um perspective i've just been researching world mythology and, and customs like that and um it's really interesting actually looking at the original creation myths and also the um the myths of how death came about as well because in the majority of cultures where where there's no connection between them quite often there is sort of you know a good female deity and they're they're always the one associated with sort of reproduction and things like that but there's also transgression by human quite often by women against their husbands which have then go on to um to make death so there's <laughs> there's a really good uh, myth from i must admit i forget the culture because I've, I've read so many of them about a woman and her grandmother who go down to the stream to to wash their clothes and the grandmother has all the wisdom of you know years and um shake um get rid of her skin like a snake and um 
becomes young again and the the young girl comes back and goes where's my grandmother that you're not my grandmother and she's like but no it's me look I've, I've shed my skin and I've become young I said no no I don't trust you at all you, where's my grandmother and uh, so the woman put her skin back on and, and that way people lost immortality and, and were unable to take their skins off after that and you know other things about women cheating on their husbands or not doing this that and the other and losing the ability to um to renew themselves or to have immortality so I do wonder whether what we're seeing is very much something universal in a weird way. Maybe it comes back to what Megan was saying about the men have the strength and have always had the strength. So the women always have to take this kind of role of creators and destroyers and sexual deviants and things because that's what's left to them irrelevant of which culture you're in. And again, mythology always sort of came about to explain the world around them and to give tell you know, morals and and so it's it it's a kind of learning thing so you take something like the succubus um you know in an age of syphilis you don't want men just going out and um sticking their dumb stick in anything because it's going to make them ill so what do you tell them about you tell them about these deviant um demonic female creatures who are going to lure them into bed and then make them ill so you know there is a kind of um actually really practical part to that story unlike the buggery goblin that uh, lucy found in her oh. uh, cracked.com article <laughs> <laughs> actually terrifying it's just quite terrible and like i say that we're talking megan was talking about the succubus having the point of you know maybe encouraging people not to go out and have promiscuous sex whereas the whole point of the buggery goblin was just that he wanted to commit buggery and get you to tell your friends yeah. about it with no other points <laughs> i felt like it <laughs> I love the fact that in the article, you've got to go see this, guys. It's so funny. Um, uh, know how I found it. Uh, it's a crack.com article, which is, talks about sexual deviance or the, the seven or eight most sexually deviant mythical creatures. And one of them is the buggery goblin. Who, and uh, one of the is like, well, you know, what can you do about this goblin? Um, the answer is nothing. You can't do anything because it's it, the goblin doesn't want anything. There's no or deal you can make it's it's just what it lives to do and and the point is that it also wants you to tell your friends which is obviously you know would you go out and tell you do you know what happened to me last night the bug paid me a visit <laughs> so, yeah kind of glad that i didn't encounter that before yesterday <laughs> nightmares um so well and, and before we get derailed by the buggery goblin um <laughs> We've um, we've talked about, you know, women using men and, you know, whether that's that's actually a, a male fantasy. Um, but what about men using women? Because um, there's there's certainly some of these mythical females are not uh, as predatory uh, as others. Um, for the, what Charlotte talked about earlier, the Selkie is often quite a, a benevolent um, creature as well as the mermaid. Um, I mean, Selkie's are generally the stories are quite sad and they're lured onto shore uh, by by a man um, who then ends up hiding the selkie skin so the poor selkie has to kind of be a human woman and and live with the man for an indeterminate amount of time but the skin is generally found and she goes back to the water and her family is, is abandoned um so you know why is there is there an equal attraction in those stories? I mean, why why do men do they do they have feel a need to kind of capture? I mean, like we've got the story of the Little Mermaid as well. That you know, 
there's something alluring about these creatures that are um they live apart from us they live, they live in a world that we you know cannot access especially water notice that too obviously the selkie and the mermaid are linked by water um you know what is why are those uh why are these creatures still popular because mermaid is probably one of the most popular um mythical females out there uh you want what you can't have mm. <laughs> to put it simply i would say just on on the selkies though, uh, one of my favourite films when I was a kid was The Secret of Rowan Inish. Do you guys know that one? I don't think so. I know of it, but I've not seen it. Brilliant film. You should uh, definitely watch it. And it's about selkies and uh, the some of the myths around there. I think also mermaids and selkies. It's also a little bit about that that similar thing of trying to explain what they don't understand. And it was that thing about, you know, when they saw dolphins and dugongs and, and those kinds of creatures that were, kind, you know, had intelligence, had something about them, and they tried to explain them. So sort of projecting humanity onto these, these creatures, you mean? Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah. <laughs> It's interesting that you said that, you know, we're talking about projecting humanity onto them, which is something that can't necessarily be done with the banshee or the siren necessarily. Or they, they, there's something negative uh, about those, those creatures. They're associated with dark fairy tales or or, dark, or devilry, in fact. Um, I, I would notice that we've, we've been talking about family and that actually selkies and mermaids, a lot of their stories are are to do with not seduction, but marriage and children and motherhood. And why is that? That they, these particular creatures are, is, is it to do with the other? But why are they singled out as becoming potential life partners, even though it, it doesn't end well? I, I see what you mean about, about that. But the way I look at it is that it's very much about power. Because if you look at all the other um, creatures that we've seen they're all kind of very tricksy they're very dangerous but the thing about the selkies and the mermaids is that if you can catch one you have ultimate power over them and you mm. can force them to be the wife and the mother and you can more importantly you can force them to be the perfect wife and mother it's never a case that you know she's sitting there sulking or whatever they've, they've always got this wistful look like they want to go to the sea um so if you can catch yourself when you're basically catching yourself a perfect wife and i think for guys it's like well brilliant i can catch myself a perfect wife and you can also laugh at the guys who in the stories because they ultimately end up losing them through some stupidity of leaving the chest unlocked or something like that um but i think there's a, a real darkness to them um i was really again reading through my notes and there's one called that i found um one called Lutie and the Mermaid, which is um, Lutie somewhere in Cornwall, I think. Um, and he finds her and he takes her back and he, she grants him three wishes. Um, this is a mermaid, sorry. And then she tries to drown him uh, and he manages to resist with iron, which is always, you know, good against fairy tale creatures. And she says, you know, I'm going to go now, but I'm going to come back in nine years time. And she does. She comes back in nine years when he's on a boat in the middle of the sea and she drags him out and drowns him. And I was kind of like, that's that's quite unusual for a selkie one. And, and with mermaids as well, I've, I wish I could find the, the story, but I couldn't locate it in my notes. But there was one where um, she gets, uh, the mermaid gets captured, um, but she kind of wants to be with him because apparently if she goes back, then the, merma, the merman will eat her children. And if the um, fisherman is caught, then the merman will eat him. So for the, the mermaid, it's almost quite good being caught because you know the mermen are obviously cannibals in some weird and horrible way um 
so you know I, I think there's there's lots of ways that these are taken but it's always about gaining completely and utterly um a not only um a woman but a creature that is is beyond compare which you perhaps don't get with all the others which have even the perfect ones have their tricksy side or have their um their sort of devilish side yeah i think also there's you know you, you've kind of spotted it in the the whole unique thing i mean what's better as a trophy than something that you have captured have complete control over and is unlike any of you know the other men's wives or <laughs> that sort of thing as well but if we're looking at sort of like you say on the other side to that um i'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of this fairy i'm really sorry because it's welsh and my welsh is terrible but there was a welsh water fairy um who married a farmer and left him after he gave her three causeless blows so basically he hit her three times that being justified so I think they've kind of they have also been used by women to kind of go, well, you have this perfect thing, but actually, if you mistreat it, it's going to bugger off and leave you. Effectively, that's a good one. I've not heard them like that before. I like that. Uh, I'd I'd really like to tell you the name, but I I just don't want anyone who's in Wales to just write in and tell me how terrible my pronunciation is. I can give you the written the written name if you want to put it in the notes, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's you know I I think there's so many selkie stories, and again, a bit like Peg Powler and Jenny Greenteeth, it's it's used by both men and women in local areas for different different things. And I think that's, you know, it's one of, unlike the sort of maybe the gods and goddesses and the, the, the other um, well-known ones, which are formed by men particularly to, you know, be negative on women, I think you can use things like selkies and mermaids to maybe put a more positive spin on it when the men aren't looking and you're making up your own stories. We've, uh, well, unsurprisingly, talked quite a lot about the relationship between these creatures and men. Um, but my next question was is going to focus on, um, you know, these, these the, the relationship that women have with these female creatures. And Megan might like to kind of chime in on this with her, her love of the Furies, because um, I was reading about uh, the Maynards or the, the Bacchae, um, the raving ones, the the mad women, who um, the followers of Dionysus who kind of go crazy and get drunk and it's just they live this hedonistic existence, um, mm -hmm. you know, tearing up bulls and it's just so completely insane. <laughs> but also it's just it makes a great story. Um you know, how do these, how did, for example, them, I mean, how do these women interact with each other? I mean, where, where do men feature in their idea of sisterhood? I mean, if at all, um, where are they coming from? Why do you like the Furies so much? I like the idea that when you have, you know, as we, we mentioned before, this, this whole thing about how it's not, women aren't generally considered to have the physical power. And so when you do get female creatures that have the physical power and go out and torture, maim, murder, destroy, etc. in the name of protecting other women rather than, you know, having just, you know, some big burly Thor type thing. Uh, you know, we, that excites me because I want to see women protected by women. And even if they are creepy bat-winged grotesque terrifying creatures they're still women fighting women's battles and yeah i think that's that's why i, I really love the furies 
Well, I quite like the uh, the Fates or the Norns. They always struck me as being being quite good ones. And I um probably partly because I read the Robin Jarvis series. Um, it's called the Weird Museum. Growing <gasps> up when I was a, <laughs> when I was a kid, it's brilliant. It's brilliant, it and fantastic. I have them on my shelf, and I want to do a reread because those that weird those Weird Museum books are magnificent and creepy as anything. I just think they're brilliant. Well, growing up in North Yorkshire, I much preferred the Whitby trilogy. And if we're looking for awesome women, um, Rowena, oh, what's she called? In the first book, um, Rowena is just, she's fantastic. She's so evil and so wonderful. And Alice, really aged old lady pensioner who just goes around and defeats the most powerful witches and wizards. And she's just brilliant. Um, but I mean, thinking about mythical females who aren't connected with men, I mean, obviously like the Furies and the, and the Fates are good ones. But generally when I was looking back through my notes, I found more when when it's women involved they're usually more antagonistic so i mean a favorite one that i remember from a kid was um athena and ariadne um for those who don't know um athena the goddess of wisdom was quite good at weaving uh well obviously being a goddess i mean she was brilliant at weaving and ariadne was a, a human a young human girl who said oh i'm so good at weaving i'm actually better than athena and athena came along and went yeah right you can prove it then um and ariadne um it depends what version you look at either she cheated or perhaps she was actually better than the goddess but either way the goddess ended up going right that's it i'm going to punish you and turned her into a spider which is where um arachnids and things come from um so there was there was always that one but also there is a lot um if you look at some of the fairy tale books i think it was diane perkis uh, was talking about um women female demons who are absolutely terrifying because they've lost children uh, we're going back to this idea of family and again also with the grims and stepmothers this idea that a woman who doesn't have children or who has had children and has lost them is actually absolutely terrifying and can't be won over by sexual um, means you know or, or tricked or anything because she's so far gone and she's so unwomanly because she's lost her children or she doesn't have one or whatever that Actually, she's a terrible, terrible demon. Um, and I mean, there's ve- many variations of this in um, ancient Greek and Roman. I think the Lamia was one of them as well. Oh, and Woman in Black, because I just remembered that yeah. when you said that she she is terrifying and she can't be reasoned with. Yeah. And she doesn't have, there's no sexuality involved whatsoever. She is just fucking terrifying. Absolutely. And I think you've, going back to um, an age of, of the Grimms and, and all that kind of, even before that, there was something terrifying about a woman that didn't have any maternal instincts at all. And we looked at it with the Selkies and the idea that the perfect woman is the one who stays at home and raises the children. So someone who's either lost her children through her own inaction or fate or whatever, um, or who has, you know, never actually wanted children like in Hansel and Gretel and seems lumbered with them or the evil queen stepmother in Snow White who didn't have the child and is now jealous of it. They're seen as absolutely terrifying by everybody, (laughs) you know, simply because they haven't got this maternal instinct. And, And that's generally, what I tend to find when I, I look at sort of females in the in the past, apart from the fates who just kick ass, obviously, and the furies. I think that's obviously why I'm terrifying to people. <laughs> I have no maternal instinct. Oh, um, <laughs> going to join you in? I'm joining you in that. <laughs> we are terrifying, Lucy. <laughs> but that's it's the... time to rip apart some bulls with our bare hands. <laughs> But that's the problem, you see. These days, we're all kind of going, well, actually, it is perfectly possible to be a woman and be sexy and not be a sexy person. It's perfectly possible to be a woman and kind and caring without wanting to have children. And I, I think that's obviously where we've obviously developed. But previously, it was all about the the child killing and the sex and stuff like that. 
I mean, it's, it's and interesting. The ripping part. <laughs> when I think about, you know, why I like the Furies, these badass women, you know, fucking up people who mess with their sisters. Um, where are the male creatures that have that are concerned with things happening to men? I know that that's, you know, not not saying that it's necessary, but I just can't think off the top of my head of an equivalent. I would suggest that you've got, as a mild equivalent, you've got all the ancient Roman and Greek gods who used to take sides. So Zeus would quite often um, have an illicit affair um, and favour his son because, you know, it was his son. And Hera uh, would kind of be well pissed off because, you know, it's obviously the um, the spawn of her husband and another woman. And she would mm. try and kind of um, kill him in a variety of ways. It would ultimately be, you know, foiled because Zeus was obviously better and it was his offspring and so on um so I suppose there was that kind of patronage that you had from that particular um from that particular I'm trying to think if there there must be others what about the we free men from Terry Pratchett (laughs) (laughs) I mean there's not many women involved there there's just the Kelder who sits at home and has all of the kids and kind of bosses them around when when they're all at home but generally they have a kind of camaraderie amongst themselves that they are just uh you know out there for each other kind of it's quite a you know kind of a homosocial society but yeah good point definitely <laughs> nothing quite as uh it's not, not quite as dramatic as as the it's all the furies well i'd say on a again thinking close to home on a more kind of local level you would have brownies which i suppose uh you know can be male or female but you again you've got brownies and local fairies are always very very concerned about how you treat them in in, in the household and and um particularly so um brett there's i wish i could remember the name of it now there's a particular brownie that um uh goes to a mill and helps out the the owner of the mill who's a who's a guy and the, the guy eventually offends the brownie who you know turns everything terrible and then wanders off and you've got masses of of stories of of brownies going and helping out Uh, being annoyed by the man or possibly the woman but quite often the man and then disappearing off or or stuff like that but again they i suppose they tend to be on a quite local level so suppose you've got the really tiny local levels of the brownies and then the really huge level of the gods and there's no (laughs) there's no intermediary for men (laughs) no it's interesting because this could lead into a completely separate uh discussion topic about the nature of sisterhood and brotherhood and whether there are you know they're they're the same or completely different because it seems that as far as you know mythical creatures go um you know the 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 bonds of sisterhood and and the examples of of women uh, interacting with other women uh in those kind of situations are you know we we can think of you know several examples with men we're really struggling so it must be a, a a different kind of relationship entirely i mean bromance is is a Obviously, it's it's separate. Um, you know that homosocial bond is a separate thing entirely from from the kind of the strong, earthy bonds of sisterhood. What about um, I was I was thinking about kind of women as the or mythical females as the arbiters of life and death. I mean, we've talked touched on um, the fates already. Um, Clotho of the fates, and she she's her job is to spin the threads of human life. Um, then there's, you know, the Lady of the Lake giving Arthur Excalibur, and she's, by doing that, she's influencing the whole course of English history. Um, Valkyries, that we've not actually talked about yet, but Valkyries are amongst one of my favourite mythical females. I love the idea that, okay, it's called them a glorified taxi service, 
but actually without the Valkyries how are those fallen warriors ever going to reach Valhalla um Hel is another great character from uh, mm-hmm. Norse mythology that she's actually the guardian and the leader and and the the over over lady of Hel and of, of the land of the dead and that she's going to lead um the chips made of dead men's fingernails which i think is the most wonderful image ever um but these are really important crucial roles and it seems that the you know the more i was thinking about it the more often you know there are examples where these um these roles have been entrusted to female figures so why is that is it is it because um is it to do with childbearing is it is it to do with motherhood and, and the fact that even giving birth to a child you're teetering on the brink between life and death that you're bringing new life into the world but death is always kind of waiting there in the shadows i mean are women naturally suited to these roles well i think you've hit the nail on the head there when you say it's all about childbirth which if you look at all mythology and all folk tales and everything Women have this place where they're both revered and feared because they can produce life in a way that men cannot. Um, I mean, we were talking earlier about all these women who are associated with the sea, which has kind of a similar thing. The sea and the water has is basically the difference between life or death. You can live without food, but you can't live without water. But at the same time, a torrential downpour or the sea flooding can absolutely devastate things. So I think women have always had... Um, this kind of dual role of being life givers and possibly destroying. But you're talking about the Valkyries and um, I've been researching for a novella. I always seem to be researching these days and looking into Norse mythology. And one of the things that I hadn't realised, which Lucy probably knows all about, is that Valkyries were not just there as a glorified taxi service, as she says, but they also had roles where they would um, choose a favorite, choose a, a young man, and they would marry him. They would train him up. They would protect him in battle. They would give him special weapons, and then at the end of it, they would kind of, you know, move him on afterwards. But they were, you tend to find them as sort of enablers, I suppose, or partners. And what's that phrase behind every great man? There's <laughs> there's a woman, which seems to be an awful lot within the idea of of fates um, and Valkyries and stuff like that. And I think again, it's partly because of the role they've taken in societies around the world as A, being life givers, and B, being the enabler at home, the one who looks after the home and defends the fort while the guys go out and, you know, club bears over the head with rocks, that kind of thing. The one I'm thinking of, so it's kind of taking us away from mythological creatures so much, um, but an interesting one in terms of looking at women being able to choose uh, life and death for someone and it's uh, one of my favorite uh, of the greek myths because it's just a bit weird um and it's that of meliga so um when he's he's small he's a baby and his his mother is um like supposedly you know sitting in front of the fire nursing him and the fates appear to her and tell her that her son is going to die when um, the piece of wood that's burning in the fire um, is is completely consumed. So she says, well, you know, she's like, well, I don't want my son to die. So she then, you know, saves the, the piece of wood and, and hides it and keeps it safe. You know, he grows up to be, you know, a big, um, you know, military strapping man. Strapping man. Yes, yes, <laughs> strapping, yes. Um, and... Basically, when 
it comes to a point, you know, it, it's again with with myths, you know, it's, it depends on which version you read and so on. Um, but basically, he becomes a bit of a naughty boy. So, this is very coy for you. You're being very coy. It's not usually your. No, I'm not. It's not coy. It's um. It's more that it he's de- been very naughty. Well, because it it depends on on which one you read. Like sometimes he's he just you know killed someone he shouldn't have. Sometimes it's you know he raped someone. You know, it's just it's one of those ones where it's that the gist is he was naughty, and uh, his mother then decides that well, he needs to die now because he's not a good man. So she takes out the piece of wood and she puts it in the fire. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> like, it's a good story. I've not heard it before. Uh, yeah, that's... it's not a particularly well-known one. But yeah, so it's it, it's this thing of, yeah, when... Uh, uh, that she, she, yeah, she does have the... You were saying it when we were talking about life and death and the power to, to yes. over them both. She really does have. She birthed him and then decided when his life was to end as well that really is the ultimate power well that's really fascinating because when I was a kid I read a story called I think it was Nornagast and it was about a young man and it was we were talking about the Norns earlier and and the fates and I think from what I remember it's been oh like two decades since I read it um I think he he offended one of them in the same way that they um at Sleeping Beauty they offend you know one of the one of the fairies and they cast a spell mm-hmm. and they basically say when this candle um burns out then you you will die so he carries this candle around with him all the time and then he ends up going to the court of a Christian king um and uh, no offense to any Christians or anything out there this is just the story that I read and the Christian king um uh, Guest is a fabulous fabulous liar player and singer and he entertains everybody and the Christian king goes well this is fantastic you know and it would make me really kind if you I'd be really obliged if you'd convert to Christianity which he you know did because he was a nice chap and he was all fine and the king went great well in that case let's burn the last bit of your candle because clearly you don't believe in the norns anymore and he went oh, I'm not so sure about that and the king kind of insisted and you know he was a king and Guest was a minstrel so he played his lyre and um, the candle burnt down. And then when it the room went into total darkness, he died. But again, that's I much prefer Megan's version because that's very empowering for women. Whereas, of course, Norna Guest was all about men and in particular, in this particular version, about Christianity. So it's fascinating how you get some bits where it's all about the men um, and some bits where actually the women, like you say, are, are the, the death bringers. So uh, we, I think we've raised far more questions than we've answered, but there is certainly a wealth of strong and often deviant female characters. Uh, some are positive role models and some are perhaps less so, but in their variety and complexity, they continue to fascinate us still. We'll hope you join us again for another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. <laughs>